Good morning. Thanks, guys. We're at the end of um, a series we're looking at. Paul tackles some tough issues where he talks to the Corinthians, and we're in the latter parts of it. And we've seen him go from dealing with a number of different issues to focusing on an issue of primary importance as he thinks about the resurrection. And um, what he has indicated in the last or the next to the last chapter, he talked about Christianity being based on a historical event, the bodily resurrection of Christ from the dead. And what he ends up doing then, he ends up tracing a list of witnesses from the first apostles who witnessed Christ in the flesh after he died. And that's the basis, that's what makes Christianity unique, that its leader died and rose again, makes him completely unique in terms of the history of religions. And what Paul then does is he brings a list of witnesses of which he is the last that saw Christ after he died and before he rose into heaven. Paul sees himself as the last of the ones who witnessed Christ in the flesh. And this event, the resurrection of Christ, is at the heart of Christian belief. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And then Jesus asked a question, because this is central to what it means to be a Christian and to to what we believe as Christians. What Jesus indicates, and he asks a question, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Then Jesus asks, do you believe this? Do you believe this? Because it is rooting our belief in this that causes us to be Christians. And it's a little trickier than it might seem. Um, However, its centrality is... Pretty clear. Uh, Jesus identified himself as the resurrection. He says, I am the resurrection and the life, and not to believe in a resurrection is not to believe in Christ, because that's one of the ways that he identifies himself. What's happening the, to the people that Paul is writing to, they couldn't fathom how a body could go into the ground and be resurrected. They couldn't figure how that could happen. Because they didn't fig- couldn't figure how it could happen, they had abandoned any trust in that it was possible. And so Paul writes to them and talks to them about the resurrection body. Look what it says. Paul writes, If the dead are not raised... Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right. And do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, 
but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for stars differ from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus, it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the perishable So they come up with a question, and somebody in Corinth is asking this, and it's reverberating through the small groups that constitute the church. How is it possible that the dead are raised? How can the dead come with a body? There were some doubters who are spreading their questions, and they're actively calling into question how a heavenly body could arise from an earthly carcass. Doesn't the body rot in the ground and become dust? How is it then that it's going to become a heavenly body when it is in that state? Paul deals with it because, again, the resurrection is a central belief, and such beliefs as were being propagated led people to want to live life now to the fullest. If this is all there is, then you might as well go for it now. Because this is it. If there's no resurrection, then this is the only life that you'll ever have. And what Paul is going to call into question is that that whole thinking, what he would indicate, and Jesus did as well, this is not the only life you're going to have. In fact, this is a like a breath, like a, a vapor. This life feels determinative. It feels like the only... but. But he's going to point out, we will, there's life on the far side of the grave. And that's what Paul talks about. It says, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. What it talks about when it says ruin good morals, it's not just immorality 
that Paul is concerned about, although that is, that is part of the problem. But interestingly, immorality is coming from calling immortality into question. When you call immortality into question, when this is it, then immorality tends to follow. I mean, eat, drink, and be merry. If you're only going to go around once and this is it, you might as well get your enjoyment while you can. If there's no immortality, then that makes sense. And, and that's why Paul is so compelled to, to clear this up. Uh, Paul sees the writing on the wall. He was, more than anybody who wrote at his time, he could see how little adjustments or maladjustments in belief could lead to huge issues down the road. And that's why he deals with what he deals with. He says to them, wake up from your drunken stupor. Drunkenness, when it applies to spirituality, it's, it's what happens when somebody is ignorant of things which they should have acquired knowledge of. It's like it's right there. You should be able to see it. And drunkenness, when it's applied spiritually, you think of drunkenness naturally. You know, I, well, I didn't see that. You know, and that's the same thing spiritually. It's things that should have been seen. And so that's what he's saying. Wake up from your drunken stupor. These are things, they're calling things into question, but you should be able to see. Don't stray on this point. That's what he's saying to them. He says, stop sinning. And the sinning here is really based in belief. And what Paul understands is misbelieving leads to misbehaving. If you, and we tend to focus on misbehaving and Behavior is important, but behavior has its roots in belief. And so what happens here, calling the resurrection into question, causes all kinds of misbehaving. And what Paul wants to do is get to the root of the problem. The root of the problem is not the behavior. The root of the problem is the belief. And that's why he says, stop sinning and sinning with respect to believing. And you said you should know better. I say this to your shame. He's very direct. And when Paul deals with beliefs, he's very targeted, very precise. He's like a laser beam. And he wants to clear this up for them. Because if they get their belief right, then everything else will follow. Jesus had the same type of arguments with people in his day. Let me just read you a little discussion he had with the Sadducees, who were the priestly class. They were the clerics of their day. And they only held to the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah, the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. There's not a lot of talk in the Old Testament about the resurrection of the dead. There's a few places, but the Jews really didn't have a belief in the resurrection from the dead. So everything they did, their obedience was based not on being able to get a heavenly reward. It just wasn't there. And it's not there at all in the first five books of the Bible. Um, but anyways, Jesus, and this is what it says in Sadducees, who were these priests who they didn't, they called the resurrection into question, came to him. Um, the Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And this is in Mark 12. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, 
Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. And then he goes on. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second brother took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? They're trying to trip him up. So this hypothetical thing, and here's what Jesus said. Uh, Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. So having, that's what Paul points out here, and Jesus had pointed it out as well. Paul goes on and says, as we read, someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? Paul writes, you foolish person. What you sow does not come to life until it, unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain, but God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. Paul uses agriculture to help them understand how a body could rise from a grave. A bare seed is planted in the ground. Planted a seed, you put a bare seed in the ground, it doesn't look like, it's really tiny. And what ends up happening, the shell of this seed decomposes. And as it decomposes and becomes corrupted and dies, what ends up happening, then that which is inside brings forth life. That once the outer husk dies, the life comes from inside, comes through, and then a plant comes up clad in leaves, this body, this body um, is like a seed that is buried. What comes out of the ground will not be a seed, but a glorious plant, and that's Paul's analogy. Our bodies are like seeds. And what comes out of the ground when our bodies are raised will, I think, will be recognizable. But this being that we're housed in, this body, is not going to be the same one that we walk around in now. It is natural now, but it will be supernatural. It is perishable. Things break down. We get sick. This body was not meant to last forever. The next one will. The next one will. The next body will perfectly serve our needs 
eternally. I imagine we'll recognize one another. The Bible doesn't say a lot. Paul, when he describes here, what he's not describing is the particulars, but what he wants us to zero in on is that the resurrection is a fact, and he's talking about some of the things that they are kind of tripping them up. Um, what is mortal will be changed by the power of God. Those who are raised will be given a body that is consistent with its home. We have a body now consistent with the earth. We will have a body then consistent with heaven. When people try to describe heaven, Paul tries, he said, I can't. It, you look at, um, read the prophets, you read Revelation, it, they try to put words to it and they can't do it. It's just, it's spectacular, amazing. It's, and our bodies will be geared for that type of domain. Incredible. Amazing. Um, you look at me and you'll say, amazing. Look at, well, look at Travis. Amazing. Yeah, I always have to pick on Travis. He just sits right there. Um, for Paul then, um, the resurrection is not the resuscitation of a corpse. The same type of creativity that God exercises with seeds, he'll exercise with bodies that go into the ground. For Paul, then, uh, he goes on, thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. And as we've talked, it seems that when Paul talks about Jesus, he doesn't talk about him as substitute. He talks about him as representative. You can stand behind one of two people. All of us naturally stand behind Adam as people of dust. And as Adam goes, so we are. Adam has a temporary body that allows for a temporary existence. He's a man of the dust. All of us are lined up behind Adam. He's our representative naturally. You don't have to do anything to be lined up behind Adam. Just being born, he is our representative, and what happens to him happens to us. What happens then, Jesus rose from the dead, and now what the Bible indicates, you can line up behind him. What Paul indicates is that this Jesus went into the ground and rose. Not just a myth, he says, and he lists people who saw him. And he lists 500 people, some of whom were alive at the time he wrote. He said, you can check it out. He rose physically from the grave. And you can line up behind him. And what happens to him will happen to you. That's what he indicates. That that's how sure it is. The hope of the Christian is not in a myth. It's in solid, hard data. They couldn't find the body. They tried. He said, destroy this body, and I will raise it up in three days. And they were looking to keep the... It, 
He rose from the dead. And what Paul is indicating, and our hope is, when your body is planted, like a seed is planted, when Jesus comes a second time, you're going to be recognizable perhaps, but not very. You're really going to like your new home. You're really going to like your new home. It's natural, by the way, just so you know, to not want to move out. When I've talked with individuals who are facing death, sometimes they feel afraid that they're afraid. You ever talk to anybody who comes to the end of their life and they're afraid of their fear? They, they think that it's a lack of faith. It's not a lack of faith to be afraid. The body naturally, naturally resists being terminated. It's not bad in doing so. This body serves us pretty well, doesn't it? It sustains us. There's parts of our brain that will keep us breathing when we lose consciousness. God put this body together very well. It serves its purpose. And when it comes to the end of its existence, it's going to be afraid. Did Jesus feel fear when he died? Is that bad then? No, his body was rejecting the idea of dying. When Jesus entered a body like you and I are in a body, he never left it. He is the first in a race, and and that's what he he understands. Um, what comes out of the ground then will um, be earthly or heavenly, and we can be lined up behind either Christ or Adam. Uh, the first Adam qualifies us to receive an earthly body. The second Adam, that's Jesus, qualifies to receive a different kind of body. You ever buy a car, used or new? You leave the dealer, and what do you get? You get temporary plates if you don't bring your plates in. And so you have this thing, and you put the the thing on your uh, dashboard, or you put temporary plates, and then you have to wait about a month and then you get your permanent plates. This, these bodies are like temporary plates. This is like a temporary car. Temporary. And what's going to happen, um, and this is temporary because Adam, in Adam we have temporary dwellings. But in Jesus, that's we get permanent plates. And that vehicle, which is going to be you, is going to last forever. Paul writes, I tell you, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. No one living or dead can enter the kingdom of God without radical change. In our earthly physicality, in these bodies, flesh and blood, this is not going to heaven in the form that it exists now. Neither is yours. You will need to go through a radical change, the same kind of change that happens when a seed is put into the ground and comes out of the ground. Your body is going to go into the ground, and it's going to come out changed. And it's going to be able to enter into heaven because of this change. This impacts our understanding of the Garden of Eden. We tend to think that Adam and Eve, if they didn't, eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, do they get to go to heaven? Ask you a question. If Adam and Eve resist the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, don't eat it, do they get to go to heaven? That's a good question, isn't it? 
scratching your heads. You know what? Were they flesh and blood? Flesh and blood cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. You know what that suggests? That before Adam and Eve had a moral problem, they had a mortal problem. You know what the mortal problem was? Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. That's why when God was pointing out the different trees, he goes, that's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if you eat of that, you die. And that's the tree of the, that's the tree of life. And if you eat from that, you live. He didn't say that. <laughs> that would have been kind of a no-brainer. I'll take door number two. <laughs> and, but the problem or the, the reality is you don't get to go to heaven by eating a piece of fruit from a tree. It says Jesus is the lamb slain from the beginning of the world, from the foundations of the world. Before there was a world to live in, before sin had entered the world, God had determined that anyone who was going to be with him forever would be there because of what Jesus did. This is before sin existed. So we tend to think that Adam and Eve stumbled, in the, and they stumbled in a way, but before they had a moral issue, they had a mortal problem. You understand that? That makes sense? Some of you are going, yeah, it's good. They didn't follow up God's plan. Before Adam and Eve sinned, God had already determined that Jesus would be the one to open the door to eternal life. It was always God's plan. So without dotting the I's and crossing the T's, when Adam and Eve, when that whole thing was happening, God wasn't going, oh, 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 oh. Ah, oh, Jesus, you're going to have to go fix this. Now look what did. Now, oh, that's not how it happened. Not how it happened. God knows exactly what He's doing. Um, from the creation of the world, eternal life would require the death and resurrection of Christ. He is the Lamb slain from the creation of the world. Paul goes on, talks about the mortal problem, the immortal solution. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. That's a verse well suited to nurseries, isn't it? We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. Nurseries? Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Okay. Let's go on. In a moment, at the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. This verse anticipates when it says, we will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. The second coming of Jesus, we will not all sleep, indicating that Jesus is going to come at some time and he's going to break into history. If we are alive at the point where 
He breaks into history, and through faith in Christ, we believe in the resurrection. We believe that he came to allow us to live eternally. If we have our faith in Christ and are lined up behind him, then what's going to happen? We're not going to die. Our body will be transformed on the spot. I'm going to, I'd like to be in that line. I'd like to be in the, I don't have to, I don't have to die before my body is changed line. We don't know. All, and Paul doesn't go into a lot of data about when it will happen or how. He doesn't dot I's or cross T's. What he does say is as Jesus came the first time, he's coming a second time. And he's not going to be a baby in a manger. He's going to be large and in charge, and he's going to be the representative of those who believe him, and he is going to allow us to be transformed and exist with him eternally. Live in the form that he lives in. Um, Paul doesn't say that our old earthly bodies will strip them off. What he seems to say, well, he talks about putting on. I'm not sure how this is going to work. But it gives a sense that it's not that there is like a ghost inside, a spirit ghost, and we have to strip off this old body. It says we're going to put on a body, and it kind of goes over it. I'm not sure how it works. But this eternal dwelling, God can fit it to us, and that's what's going to happen when we when he comes a second time. Um, so when Jesus comes at the end of history, our bodies will come out of the ground, wherever they are, whatever form they're in, and they will be changed like a seed which has become a plant, and our, we will exist, spirit in body, in that way, forever. Um, death is defeated at that point when, body are raised, when bodies are raised and changed. Um, death will finally be defeated when... We who have died and those who are alive are changed and ushered into the kingdom of God. Death will not exist anymore, anywhere. It says, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Sting is either, it can be the stinger of a wasp or a bee or a goad, something used to prod someone or something. Um, It indicates that death's sting enables death to exercise its dominion over the whole world. Death has a stinger, a goad. And here's the image. If I wanted to move you along, and if I have a goad, I stick it you in the flank, and you have to go where I want you to go. What it indicates is that death has a stinger. And we are prodded to do this and to do that. In the book of Hebrews, it talks a little bit more about this. It says, therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise, Jesus, also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery their whole lives. It's indicating here that at some point 
The fear of death exercises an enslaving influence on all of mankind, all of us. Now, we might not always be aware of it, but it's not very far from our thoughts. Maybe a couple of thoughts removed. The fear of death, and that fear of death is there's something like a prod and it's something that drives us here and drives us there. What Jesus did, he comes to render powerless him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. I want you to think about Ebenezer Scrooge in The Christmas Carol. You know, so the ghost of Christmas past, the ghost of Christmas present, the ghost of Christmas future. Oh, you know, and then he's he's looking at his grave, and you know, there's the big bony finger pointing at the grave. Ebenezer Scrooge, you know, there's lightning, and he's having to look at it. So I want you to get that image. He is terrified of his death. Terrified of his death. That's kind of the image, but it adds another another individual. It says, and we'll try to understand this. There is the fear of death, but then there's the power of death. And the devil holds the power of death. And this power of death is like a goad. It's one thing to be tyrannized by looking at our death, but there is another thing at work here. The devil with a goad, making it intolerable. What is the power of death? It's not just talking, again, about the process of dying. That's not what it's talking about. Satan holds the power of death, and this power of death is what brings us into spiritual slavery. What is that? What is that? What is the power of death? Um, what it says, it talks about the power of God here and the power of sin. I want you to look at these verses. Find the power of God. What is the power of God? Take a look at the verse. Tell me when you find it. What's the power of God? What is it? Salvation, and specifically, what is it that leads to salvation? I am not ashamed of the gospel, the good news that Jesus died and rose, and those who believe in him will rise in the same way that he did. That's the good news. So that's the power of God, the gospel. And if you hear the gospel and believe it, it becomes that which will allow you to get a new body that's going to exist eternally. That's the power of God. Now, there's the second verse talks about the power of sin. What's the power of sin? Law. Isn't that strange? If you put a conditional you're blessed if you obey and cursed if you disobey. If you put that over someone, you increase their sin problem. That's what it indicates, that the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is law. You know what the power of death is then in Satan's hand? Law and the sense of what you've done to violate it. All of us, all of us. 
are going to react to the physical realities of dying. That's not the thing that makes death intolerable, though. Do you know what makes death intolerable? What's going to happen on the other side? You know what you've done. Is it enough? Are the good things you've done enough to cause you to live with him? You know the bad things you've done. Are those enough to foil? And what the, let's get back to Ebenezer Scrooge at his grave. The sting of death and the power of sin is law. What he uses as a stinger is, you're not going. Look what you've done. You can't go. Look what you've done. Look what you did. Look what you did. You can't get there. And that makes the fear of death intolerable. With when the salvation issue is dealt with or as it becomes something that we become more and more resting in. I'm going to illustration. Let's let this chair represent eternal life. Indicates that eternal life comes from believing in what Jesus did. Believing that his death, him being our representative, he was, he who had no sin became sin. He was cursed Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree, and then Jesus represents someone who was cursed under law and someone who became sin under law, became lawless. Now, why I'm pointing all this out is what Jesus rose from the dead. And what that means, those who believe in Jesus, sinners, are cursed. You know the things you did? Those are sins. And that gets in the way of eternal existence. But sin under law does not keep you out of heaven. How do you know that? Jesus was raised. He was gone. He was raised from the dead. Jesus was cursed under law. Cursed is everyone who was hung on a tree. What happens with those who are cursed under law? What's going to happen? They raise. How do you know they're going to raise? Because Jesus rose. So... You have this confidence. You believe this chair can hold me up? Believe it? Why isn't it holding me up? Because I'm not sitting in it. Early on, if you ask me, Mike, what's going to happen when you die? I would have said earlier in life, I said, um, I don't know. I think I'm going to go to heaven. And if you'd ask me, why? I would have said, because I, because I, because I, because I, because I. And I would have said, I, what I do, what I don't do. And what does that tell you about who I'm trusting in for eternal life? I'm trusting in me. Eternal life is given to those who don't trust in themselves, but who trust in Christ. This is what Jesus did. And when you put the weight of your eternal destiny onto him, that because he died and rose, that is why you can rise after you die. 
And as you put your confidence and weight, this is something that you determine. I'm going to put my faith, but it's not something that grows overnight, is it? It's progressive. We'll continue to talk about what Jesus did because the more you put your weight on and you're not as afraid of judgment, and again, this is something we'll all deal with, then the fear of death becomes something that doesn't go away, but stripped of, I wonder what's going to happen to me. It doesn't become as terrifying. We're going to talk about this when we talk about sympathy and sovereignty in the next thing. We're going to talk about the sympathy of God. What does Jesus sympathize with? We talked about one thing, the fear of death. We're going to talk about sympathy, and we're going to talk about sovereignty. Sympathy is something that makes God good. Sovereignty is something that makes God great. We're going to touch on God's goodness and his greatness in July and August. Um, Last verse, and then I'm glad we don't smell, smell the hamburger. I'm going to make this quick. It says, when you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with his regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. So what Jesus does, he ends up dealing with the power of death that is In law, and this is what it says about it, he took it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. The fear of death is bad enough. What Paul wants us to do is be brilliant in the basics, to be brilliant in the basics. Jesus died and rose again. And what's going to happen, those who die in Christ, believing in him, what's going to happen, that your body's going to go into the ground, it's going to come up, When Jesus comes back, changed. You will go into the presence of God and live there forever in a body that will never, never deteriorate or perish. And how do we know this? Because three days after Jesus went into a grave in Jerusalem, he was gone and indicated that those who believe in him are going to experience exactly the same thing. Devin, come on up. Father, thank you for salvation, and it's rooted in an event. All of us are going to die. Maybe if you come back, we'll be changed, but we might not have to die. We don't understand when you're going to come. We know What we do know is that um, you sent your son so that the fear of judgment could be removed. There is no judgment or condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no judgment for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no judgment for those who are in Christ Jesus. If we believe that, we end up moving towards our end in a different way. We don't run towards it, but we don't shirk away from it. There's frightening things, but the frightening things are not on the far side. Jesus rose so that we would have a basis on which to believe that. I pray that you would continue to root our faith in the resurrection of Christ and what it means for us in Jesus' name. And let me pray for the food. God, thanks for the chance we'll have to be able to eat together, Um, sitting around tables, getting to know one another.
Um, thanks for the opportunity to do so for the people that have provided. In Jesus' name, amen. Like it's, if you want to just, boom.